Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast. My name is Philip and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 44, Roman Pantomime, The Silent Art. Last time, I introduced the art of Roman mime, the short comic plays that grew out of local rustic farce in a long tradition that spanned the empire and beyond, still to be recognised as a form in the Byzantine Empire. The plays included music and dance, as well as, we think, a lot of improvisation, so we lack any significant detail about the form. Fortunately, there was another form of drama in the imperial period, and we do have a few more details about that, although the sources are still relatively poor, so there are many gaps in our understanding. This is Roman pantomime. In the imperial period, pantomime was the dominant form of theatrical art. The word derives from the Greek pan, meaning all, and mimos, meaning imitator. The performer neither spoke nor sung, but told stories through gesture. And just for the Brits listening in, there is no connection to the pantomime tradition here that's so much part of our Christmas-time theatrical entertainment. You may remember that I had a conversation with Dr Elodie Palliar about the period of development between Greek and Roman drama. This was episode 30 of the podcast, and in the following episode we discussed the work she'd done analysing the way the roles of minor characters changed in Sophoclean drama, and how this may have reflected changes in Athenian society. Dr Palliar shared some great insights with me, and if you haven't listened to those episodes yet, then I recommend that you do so just as soon as you get a chance. There was a short part of our conversation that covered pantomime, which I didn't include in the previous episodes, so here it is now. I asked Dr Palliar on her thoughts about why pantomime had become such a dominant form by the early imperial period. Pantomime is, is very interesting. So it, it really takes off, if you want, uh, not to say that it was really invented uh, at the beginning of the imperial period, but it gets really a hugely, it becomes a hugely successful uh, genre, if you want, during the, the first centuries of the imperial period for, for reasons that are a bit different. Uh, from what we saw about tragedy or, or, or comedy. So pantomime is a very visual kind of spectacle. So words spoken or sung are much less important in pantomime than they are in comedies and tragedies. Pantomime is all about dance, so the center of a pantomime performance is the pantomime dancer, the one who dances episodes uh, like mythological episodes or little stories that took place in the mythological uh, realm. And he, the, the performer not only danced those, those stories, if you want, but he, and in some cases, she, very rarely, but <laughs> let's say he, he mimed the stories with gestures, with uh, body positions. So it means that even if you couldn't understand anything of what was sung by the, the accompanying chorus or the accompanying singer, it didn't really matter that much. So it 
it was a, an, a form of theater that was much less dependent on the linguistic competencies of the audience than something like tragedy or comedy. I think that might have been one of the, of the reasons why it really took off uh, during the, the early empire. Because once again, with the expansion of Rome, you get annexed to this Roman culture, lots of places where people didn't speak Latin or Greek. So having the advantage of a theatrical art form that was less dependent on the linguistic component of, of, the, of the performance was quite practical, was quite convenient. So as I said, just to, to describe perhaps the, the kind of, of spectacle, it was a bit better. So you have the pantomime dancer who, who mimes and dances a mythological story most of the time. He is using different masks of up to five for, for each performance, for each story he will dance. So that the performer changed mask during the performance. That's something that didn't happen during, during for, for tragedies and comedies. So that's something new as well. The mask didn't have this big open mouth as, uh, as we know of comedy masks, for example. The pantomime dancer didn't actually say or sing anything during his performance. So the mask had a closed mouth, no, no opening in the mask. The costumes of the, of the pantomime dancer was also very, very important. It was, again, a very good quality costume, something that was visually uh, stunning, something made of silk, for example. And the pantomime dancer played with his costumes, with accessories such as, for example, a scarf. So. He used his costume as a prop, if you want, to uh, for his performance. So that's that's the part that is really at the heart of the of, of the pantomime performance. But then there was still a linguistic uh, component, if you want, because it was accompanied by a chorus or by a solo singer who would sing, sometimes speak, perhaps from a libretto, if you want. So there was still a written, or at least a composed, uh, or linguistically composed to this, uh, attached to, to this performance, but it was not at the heart of the, of the spectacle. It was much less important than for tragedies and comedies. And of course there was music. I, I sorry, I, I didn't think about saying it, but it goes without saying all those theatrical performances, uh, pantomime or, or comedies or tragedies, music is a very, very important component of that. Um, a, a Greek theater play in the classical period is a musical event, if you want, much more than in, it doesn't really look like when we are going to, to attend a, a theater play today. I mean, it's much more musical. So in pantomime too, there was this, this aspect of music was probably very, very important. And the fact that the, 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 the performance was re-centered onto these, those visual uh, components 
onto this dance, these gestures, the, the, the miming of the, the emotions as well. It means that, unfortunately, we haven't kept any of those, <laughs> none of those libretti are, are really extant. We don't have the texts that were sung or all spoken to go with the, the, the pantomime dancer performance because it was not at the heart of the, the, the emphasis was not on the literary text anymore. Yes, and thank you for reminding us about the influence of music. I think it's uh, certainly something that I probably haven't stressed enough in both Greek and Roman is how important the inclusion of music was music again that would sound different very different to our western ears and that's a great description of the pantomime and i can see that a form that doesn't rely on words is suitable for an empire that is multicultural and multiracial by that time and in performance spaces that are huge so much easier to convey that to everybody you know and and act big to the back of the stalls back of the circle even and not rely on on words in quite the same way yeah, absolutely. And and the, the, the pantomime dancers were, were people that you could compare to to really international stars today. They they, they had a huge success with the with their, their audiences. And emperors actually kind of tried to channel those um, emotions of the of the of the audience into political advantages. Because you, you could always use those pantomime dancers as, you know, to show yourself being a friend of the Roman people, if you want, because you would give them those huge performances that they really liked. At the same time, you know, pantomime performances were very a very flexible type of performances, because you, you could add more musicians you could add more people in the chorus. You could add perhaps secondary kind of actors or reciters to make it even more spectacular, even, even more stunning. So in those big theaters all around the Roman Empire, I think that quite a lot of what was performed were actually those, those pantomime performances rather than, let's say, the, the plays of Terence or something like that, or even of re-performances of Menander. Yeah, and it does seem that there was a real development of an art, like an almost like an arms race of how grand can we make these performances, how, how big can we make our theatres, how sumptuous can we make them, because they were being used for political ends to, to show off power. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That. Like the, the, the links between... between theatrical activities and the imperial cult, if you want, was very, very much felt. If you, if you were a Roman emperor and you could have all those people gathered at the same place uh, under your power, because you are the organizer of the, of the, of the performance, you, you are the one giving them what they want. So, of course, it's a very, very convenient <laughs> way of managing your people not to say something else. So a real tool of mass communication uh, as much as going to the games or um, any of the things we normally associate with with Roman emperors, particularly that Julio-Claudian dynasty. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's definitely the mass uh, entertainment of... uh, this of this period and 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 pantomime is is a big is a big thing at the at the time. Once again, um, our 
knowledge of pantomime is diminished by the fact with, by, uh, by the fact that we don't have any uh, or much written sources uh, for what was performed. But I think now that it's quite important to realize that theater was a performance before it was a text. And we should probably be less tied to simply texts and, and literary sources when we think about ancient theater. And pantomime, I think, encourages us to, to view theater as what it was, really a visual performance, a musical performance as well, as something that could be more or less literary, if you want. So Dr. Palliar gives us a good sense there of what pantomime was and how it worked based on a non-verbal performance style. Also, I think we get a good idea of the reach and domination of pantomime amongst the theatrical forms. Through hundreds of years, it was the popular form of entertainment in the theatre. But where did it come from? Well, Roman pantomime, like its name, we think came from Greece. There's a tradition that it was introduced in Rome in the late 1st century BCE, but it's likely that it, or a very similar form, existed long before that. One route could have been through the tradition of a single masked dancer performing to music, which goes back through the likes of Livius Andronicus to the origins of Greek drama. So, in a way similar to the development of mime that I discussed in the last episode, pantomime probably came to Greece through southern Italy to Rome. The tradition that dates Roman pantomime to the 1st century BCE probably speaks to some specific innovations that were particularly adapted by the Romans. Another strong tradition is that the first emperor, Augustus, was a key promoter of pantomime. A well-known mime artist, one Pylades, had been exiled from Rome, but Augustus allowed him back into the city and became a supporter of the art form. This was a popular move with the people, and Cassius Dio, in his History of Rome, suggests that Augustus' aim was to distract the people from other restrictive rules and regulations that he'd recently put in place. In this respect, Dio says, the emperor was entirely successful. Later, Pylades had a public spat with Bathyllus, another mime performer, and received a reprimand for his behaviour from Augustus. In a brave and possibly foolish move, he responded by saying that Caesar should recognise that it was to his advantage that people should devote their leisure time to the pantomimes. It seems he was well aware of how he was being used for political ends. Pylades became so well known for a spectacular type of pantomime that it became a subgenre named after him. Plutarch commented in one of his dialogues that such grandiose entertainments were only suitable for large performance spaces and the big crowd. He said, I reject the sort of dancing which is called Pylodian because it's full of pomp, very pathetical and requires a great many people. But if we would admit any of these sort that derive from the plays Socrates mentions in his discourse about dancing, I like the sort that is called Bathylian, which requires not so high a motion but has something of the character of the cordax and resembles the motion of an echo, a pan or a satire frolicking with love. The mention of cordax here refers to a dance that originated in Greek comedy. It was a suggestive, provocative masked dance. The Turkish belly dance is perhaps the closest thing we still have related to it today. Aristophanes was scathing of its use, suggesting that poets only needed to include it in their plays when they needed to distract the audience from their own failings. But Plutarch clearly did not share that view. The success of pantomime can, we think, be largely attributed to its non-verbal form of communication. 
A useful comparison is perhaps to think of opera in modern times. It doesn't always matter that we watch opera in a foreign language. The story can be followed through the music and the action, through the entire visual experience. But at some level, the music can transcend verbal communication and appeal directly to the emotions. Similarly, we just have to look at the success of English-language popular music, primarily from the US and the UK, in non-English-speaking countries, to appreciate that music breaks down barriers that spoken language can erect. The Roman Empire was multicultural and multilingual, but the performer of pantomime could travel and practice their art across the extensive Roman lands without encountering issues of non-communication with an audience, or at least greatly reducing them. The lack of any surviving scripts means that we don't have much information about what a performance of pantomime was really like, but we do have descriptions from commentators in the period, which go some way to filling that gap. Perhaps the best one is by Lucian, a Greek writing in the 2nd century CE, but there is a problem. Lucian often used satire and irony in his writings, so we can't be certain that his discussion on pantomime, simply called On Dancing, does not include these elements, and we should be cautious about taking it at face value. That said, the work is still interesting. It takes the form of a discussion between two people, one arguing that the art is immoral and vulgar, and the other defending it as a worthy form of performance art. At one point, he goes as far as to say that pantomime is more sophisticated than tragedy and comedy. He says, There's no need for me to say how beautiful and glorious the appearance of the dancer is, for that is clear for everyone with eyes to see. His mask is as beautiful as possible and always appropriate for the drama being performed. It's not gaping open like the mask of comedy and tragedy, but has its mouth closed. The dancer has the chorus to do the singing for him. In past times, the dancer sang and danced, but since the breath required for dancing interfered with the song, it was deemed better for the chorus to sing in the accompaniment to the dance. Tragedy and dance have the same plots, except that the plots for dance are more varied and more learned, having thousands of changes of fortune in them. In another particularly significant section, there's a description of the effectiveness of storytelling in pantomime. In this passage, there's mention of the scabillum. This was an instrument made of two wooden blocks. They were struck sharply together by hand or with the foot to make a sharp clap. It is thought that this was used to help with timekeeping by performer and musicians. Since the dancer is an imitator and says he will show with movements what is being sung, it is necessary for him to practice absolute clarity, just as like the orators do, so that everything he represents is made clear by him with no part of the explanation missing. As the Delphic oracle once said, the watcher of the dance must be able to understand the silence and hear the dancer, though he be mute. This is what it is said Demetrius the Cynic experienced. He himself spoke against the dance, saying that the dancer was just an addition to the tibia and the panpipes and the clap of the scabillum, and that the dancer himself added nothing to the performance. But he made meaningless and foolish movements, to which no thought was given. He said those who liked pantomime were spellbound by trivial things that went along with the performance, the silk costumes, the lovely masks, the flourishes of the tibia, and the sweet singing of the chorus. All of this, to which the performance of the dancer contributed nothing. In response, a well-known dancer at the time of Nero, who excelled as no one else did in his ability to dance stories and in the beauty of his movements, made of Demetrius what I think was a very reasonable request. He asked him to watch him dance before he found fault with him, and he promised that he would perform for him without the tibia and without singing. 
And that's exactly what he did. He asked for silence from the players and the chorus, and then, all alone, he danced the story of the tryst between Aphrodite and Ares, as Helios reported it. He showed Hephaestus plotting and catching both of them, Aphrodite and Ares captured and held, and every one of the gods who looked on. Then there was Aphrodite being ashamed, and Ares trying to hide and begging for mercy, and everything that makes this story. Demetrius, utterly delighted with what he had seen, gave the highest praise to the dancer. He said in a loud voice for all to hear, Good fellow, I hear what you are doing. I don't just see it, but you seem to be speaking to me with your hands. And the claims for the greatness of pantomime continue. Through dance it's argued that the entire range of stories, characters and emotions can be shown, interpreted and understood. And the dancer can portray many and varied characters, even many times on the same day. Pantomime is seen as a more complete art form than any other because it brings together the art of the actor, be that the tragedian or the comedian, the dancer, the singer and the musician in one place, whereas the other art forms only use one of these at a time. The argument is then extended to claim that pantomime can engage two halves of a person, the soul and the body, at the same time, whereas the other forms of entertainment only display one at a time. Dance, it's said, shows the workings of the mind as well as the body and puts wisdom on display. This is achieved by the control and precision that the dancer has to exercise in their movements. He compares the pleasures derived from watching dance to the much poorer experience of watching boxing or wrestling, saying that dance can even represent those activities in a way that is safer, more beautiful and more pleasurable to watch than the activities themselves. The dance, he claims, can become completely harmonious with life, both imitating it in a heightened expression of reality, while providing the dancer with fitness and training to be in complete control of their body. But he admits that it can go too far, and tells of how exaggeration in gesture and meaning can ruin not only a performance, but the career of a dancer. Big, he says, does not mean enormous. Delicate does not mean overtly feminine. Masculinity does not mean bestial savagery. He recalls the story of a well-regarded dancer who misjudged a performance of the role of Ajax. While dancing the scene where Ajax is driven to madness, he fell into the trap of too much exaggeration. He went so well beyond all the bounds that someone might have thought that he were not feigning madness at all, but was himself insane. He tore at the costume of one of the men who was beating time with the scabillium. Then he grabbed the tibia from one of the players, struck the actor who was playing as Odysseus, who was standing nearby boasting of his victory, and cracked his head open. If it hadn't been for his helmet, which took the brunt of the blow, poor Odysseus would have perished. He criticises those in the audience who reacted to the display, calling them unsophisticated, whereas those who realised how poor this performance was were ashamed. He continues, Some marvelled at this, some laughed, and some suspected that from excessive imitation the dancer had been carried off into true madness. And indeed, they say that he himself, after he regained his senses, regretted what he had done and become ill from grief, and so he was pronounced truly insane. In fact, when his fans begged him to dance Ajax for them again, he begged to be let off and said to the audience, It is enough for an actor to have gone mad once. What most distressed him was that his competitor and rival, when he took on the part of Ajax, presented the madness with such refinement and moderation that he won praise as one who remained within the limits of the dance and did not insult the art of acting. 
This gives the impression of pantomime as a sophisticated performance art that required an understanding of its methods and intentions, perhaps similar to the full appreciation of the art of ballet and opera today. But it was a mass entertainment that was hugely popular. Though it did have its detractors, Seneca couldn't understand the popular obsession with pantomime, and Juvenal claimed with disdain that women became so enthralled with pantomime performers to the extent that they couldn't control themselves during performances. Such visceral reactions may seem strange to us now, perhaps only the reactions of teenagers to the latest pop idols are comparable in our time, but there are constant reports throughout the imperial period of pantomime having significant effects. Tacitus records that rioters in 15 CE during the reign of Tiberius were due to rivalries between different groups of supporters of different performers. The senatorial debate on the subject mentions deaths in the rioting that bubbled on for a year or more. The Senate suggested that the performers should be beaten as punishment for their followers' behaviour, but this was vetoed because Augustus had passed laws forbidding the physical punishment of actors. Instead, curbs were placed on the taxes that were used to pay actors, and their performances were officially confined to the theatre. This curtailed visits to the homes of senators and equestrians, who were also forbidden to consort with pantomime artists in public. It seems likely that these rules were quite ineffective. Tiberius later had to exile all pantomime performers from Rome, and the expulsion wasn't reversed until Caligula took power in 37 CE. Caligula was said to perform in pantomime dances himself, calling on chosen senators to see his performances in the middle of the night. Given his reputation for erratic behaviour and a willingness to punish, even execute, anyone who displeased him, his performances were no doubt a frightening experience for the selected audience, and I'm sure received with thunderous applause. Caligula's obsession with pantomime extended to a closeness with the performers, who already had a reputation for low morals. He was said to call them out mid-performance and kiss them passionately, the implication being that he also took them to his bed. Anyone in court disturbing a performance of his favourite performer, Manesta, was dragged from their seat and personally whipped by the emperor. Caligula was one of the maddest and baddest of the bad Roman emperors, and his obsessions with pantomime did nothing to enhance the reputation of the performers. He met his own end at the hands of the Praetorian Guard during a pantomime performance, with the audience running for their lives in fear of the guards slaughtering them all. When Suetonius wrote about the death of Caligula, his account of the omens gives us some idea of the sort of extreme special effects that might be used in the Roman theatre. He said, The day before Caligula was killed, he dreamt that he stood in heaven beside the throne of Jupiter, and that the god struck him with his toe of his right foot, and hurled him to the earth. Some things which happened on the very day shortly before he was killed were also regarded as omens. As he was sacrificing, he was sprinkled with the blood of a flamingo, and the pantomimic actor Manesta danced a tragedy, which the tragedian Neoptolemus had acted years before, during the games at which Philip, king of the Macedonians, was assassinated. In a farce called Lerolus, in which the chief actor falls as he's making his escape and vomits blood, several understudies so vied with one another in giving evidence of their proficiency that the stage swam with blood. A nocturnal performance besides was rehearsing, in which scenes from the lower world were represented by Egyptians and Ethiopians. Juvenal was very concerned about the impact that performances might have had on the morals of the populace, suggesting, as I've already mentioned, that women could lose all control when they watched a good mime. In his sixth satire, he says, 
Can you find any woman that's worthy of you through the doors of a theatre? Does any seat there contain a woman you could take from there and love with confidence? When lithe Bathilius dances the pantomime leader, Tukia wets herself. Apula cries out as if she was making love, and innocent Thymele watches carefully and learns a thing or two. Stories of naked performers, suggestive movements and dancing, and even the performance of sex acts on stage continue to pop up during the imperial period. The wife of Emperor Domitian took a pantomime performer as a lover. After this came to the emperor's attention, he met the performer in the street and promptly stabbed him to death. But for all its dangerous associations, and who knows, perhaps because of them, there was a large section of society who loved the theatre and the actors. In the upper ranks of society, some wealthy Romans kept troops of actors on for their own private entertainments. Pliny the Younger leaves us the story of one such wealthy woman from the 1st century CE. She was the grandmother of a friend of his, a friend of good character, according to Pliny. This point is proved by the fact that she kept a troop of mimes at her villa, but never allowed her grandson to be present when they were performing. He praises the young man, while admitting that for the grandmother, keeping company with mime artists was far from appropriate, given her social status. The tale was confirmed for him when he visited the theatre with the young man, who said that it was the first time that he'd seen his grandmother's freedman perform. There's a description of a pantomime in a fictional story written in the 2nd century CE by the Platonist philosopher Apuleius. In the course of the story, which is a very early picaresque novel, the protagonist is turned into an ass by magic, and at one point ends up at the games where he sees a mime being performed. This is a work of fiction, but it seems reasonable that the description of the mime, which is quite detailed, is not unrealistic. I've cut some extraneous material from the original, so what follows is an edited quote, although still quite long. The entertainment began with actors' comic mimes. There were boys and girls in the bloom of youth, outstanding in their fresh beauty, splendid costumes and graceful movements, ready to perform the Pyrrhic dance. They moved in decorous, unwaving order, now weaving in and out in a whirling circle, now linking hands in a slanting chain, now in wedges forming a hollow square, now separating indistinct troops. When the trumpet's final note unwove their knotted complexities of their intricate motion, the curtain was raised, the screens folded back, and the stage was set. There stood a mountain of wood, built with noble skill to resemble the illustrious Mount Ida that Homer sung of. It was planted out with living trees and bushes, and from its summit a stream of water flowed from a fountain made by the designer's own hand. A handful of goats were cropping the grass, and a youth beautifully dressed in the manner of Paris, a Phrygian shepherd, an Asiatic robe flowing from over his shoulder, a golden tiara on his brow, pretended to be tending to the flock. Then a shining lad appeared, naked except for a cloak worn on his left shoulder, attracting all gazes, with his blonde hair, with little gold wings on either side projecting from his curls, and a wand, proclaiming him as Mercury. He danced forward, bearing in his right hand an apple covered in gold leaf, and offered it to the actor playing Paris. Then, relaying Jupiter's instructions for the action to follow, he nodded swiftly and gracefully retraced his steps and vanished. Next arrived a respectable-looking girl, dressed as a goddess Juno, a pure white diadem on her brow and a sceptre in her hand. Then on came another you'd have recognised as Minerva, a shining helm crowned with an olive wreath on her head, holding a shield and brandishing a spear as if off to battle. 
Then another girl made her entrance, a real beauty, with an ambrosial complexion, playing Venus as Venus looked before her marriage. Her exquisite naked form was bare, except for a piece of silken gauze with which she veiled her sweet charms. An inquisitive little breeze kept blowing this veil aside in wanton playfulness, so that it lifted now to show her ripening bud, or now pressed madly against her, clinging tightly, smoothly delineating her voluptuous limbs. The goddess's very colouring offered interest to the eye, her body the white of heaven from which she came, her veil the blue of the sea from which she rose. Each of the girls who played a goddess were accompanied by attendants, Juno by two lads from the acting troupe, depicting Castor on Pollux, heads capped with helmets shaped like the halves of the egg that they came from, topped by stars to signify the twins, their constellation. To the sound of an Ionian flute piping melodies, the goddess advanced with calm, unpretentious steps, and with graceful gestures promised Paris rule over all Asia if he granted her the prize for beauty. The girl, whose weapons denoted Minerva, was guarded by two boys, depicting terror and fear, armour-bearers to the war goddess, leaping forward with drawn swords. Behind them, a piper played a battle tune, in the Dorian mode, a deep droning intermingled with shrill screeches, stirring them to energetic dance. Minerva tossed her head, glared threateningly, and informed Paris in swift and abrupt gestures that should he grant her victory in this beauty contest, then, with her assistance, he would be rewarded for his bravery in the triumphs of war. Then came Venus, to the audience's loud applause, taking her place gracefully at centre stage, sweetly smiling and ringed by a happy host of little boys, so chubby and milky white that they could have thought them real cupids flown down from heaven, or in form of the sea. With little wings and archery sets, and all the rest, they truly fitted the part, lighting their mistress's way with glowing torches, as if they were off to a wedding feast. Next a crowd of beautiful girls streamed in, the most graceful of graces, the loveliest of ours, scattering garlands and loose flowers in tribute for their goddess, paying honour to the queen of all pleasure with the blossoms of spring. Now flutes of many notes played Lydian airs in sweet harmony, and as their soft melodies charmed the hearts of the audience, Venus began a gentle dance, with slow, hesitant steps, and sinuously swaying body and head, advancing with delicate movements to the sweet sound of the flutes. Letting fly passionate or sharp and menacing gestures, she often seemed to be dancing by means of her eyelids alone. As soon as she reached the judge Paris, she promised with transparent gestures that if he preferred her above the two other goddesses, she would grant him a bride of marvellous beauty, in the very image of herself. At this the Phrygian youth gladly handed her the golden apple, in token of yielding her the victory. Mime and pantomime were mass popular entertainment, but also appreciated as a diverse and sophisticated art form. They could be satiric and crude, even pornographic if later reports are to be believed, and the cause of riots by devoted fans, but also appreciated for their purity and artistry. That, I think, is a microcosm of Roman society, which was advanced, cultured and sophisticated in so many ways, but also brutal and cruel, and prepared to condone violence and social disparities that are barely imaginable now. Next time I'm going to sum up as best as I can and conclude my review of the history of the theatre in the Roman period. 
We've moved through several centuries and several forms of theatre, looked at the changing face of the places where theatre was presented, discussed the major playwrights and reviewed some of their plays. So there'll be a lot to cover and try to bring some conclusions to. My thanks again to Dr Palial for her contribution to this and the two earlier episodes. If you'd like to connect with her, I've put her Twitter handle in the show notes. I look forward to your company next time. Don't forget that all episodes are posted to the YouTube channel if that's an easier place for you to listen from, and you should be able to find us on all good podcast apps. If you'd like to support the podcast, please find us at patreon.com or go to ko-fi.com and leave me a tip just to say thanks. If you have a spare moment, please take a couple of minutes to rate the podcast and write a review on Apple Podcasts to help other theatre and history buffs find us. Thanks so much for your support, and if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. (laughs) 